Coming up on this episode. I actually am a survivor of traumatic brain injury and um, it was a very impactful time in my life. Um, like what is a traumatic brain injury? And I think that's the biggest thing that um, people don't really know. Um, so there are lots of definitions of traumatic brain injury too from the World Health Organization. The CDC has a definition. So I like the CDC definition. Hello, everyone. So happy to connect with you to highlight some key public health issues. I'm excited today about the topic of discussion, traumatic brain injuries. Welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a faculty member and public health researcher at Ohio University. Traumatic brain injuries are so common, but we do not have a good understanding of what they are and how best to address them. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Catherine Cox, a PhD candidate in the College of Social Work at The Ohio State University, who will help shed light on the issue as well as address some misconceptions and long-term public health implications. Prior to starting her Master's of Social Work at The Ohio State University in 2012, Catherine worked as a research intern on the Traumatic Brain Injury Model Systems Study in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Immediately after that, Catherine began her career in research as a research associate at Nationwide Children's Hospital in one of the nine US CDC-funded injury control research centers where she studied variations and implementation of the US National Traumatic Brain Injury Laws within high schools. She has gained extensive experience as a regional field epidemiologist and was promoted to research coordinator on a statewide mixed method study funded by the National Institutes on Drug Abuse through the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Catherine is also very well published in peer-reviewed journals and was recently um, selected by the editor of the Journal of Adolescent Health as a feature in the March 2018 issue. And she currently serves as an elected member representing the public on the Brain Injury Advisory Committee of Ohio. Please join me in welcoming Catherine Cox to the show. Welcome to the show, Catherine. We are glad to have you as our guest today and to talk more about traumatic brain injuries. This is such an important topic and we'll even get to see how it intersects with public health. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Kingori. All right. So to get us started, I had a chance to look at your biography and I see that your primary research focuses on the implementation of traumatic brain injury screening and interventions in behavioral healthcare settings. Could you tell us how you got interested in this area of TBI? Yeah, definitely. So I think that the answer to that is kind of twofold. Um, so I'll start off with more of like a personal story. Um, a lot of my colleagues actually don't know this about me. Um, and so this will be the first time that they're hearing it if they um, listen to this podcast. But I actually am a survivor of traumatic brain injury. Um, I sustained a pretty bad concussion during a cheerleading um, practice in undergrad um, at a college out of state. And um, it was a very impactful time in my life. Um, you know, so I had this brain injury. I suffered this traumatic brain injury. Um, and it was a concussion. So concussions are forms of traumatic brain injury. And um, during that whole recovery process, I learned so much about the brain. I just became really interested in it and just really passionate about it. And, you know, all the intricacies that a traumatic brain injury can cause um, and changes that they can cause in an individual's life. So for me, um, you know, during that time, I had I sustained the traumatic brain injury, as well as a cervical spine injury in the C5 and 6 vertebrae. So it, it was a pretty serious thing. And it took about two years for me to fully recover from that injury. Um, lots of neurology appointments and uh, speech therapy and occupational therapy, because I actually developed a stutter after 
the injury at the time. And so I went from someone who was um, just super confident and really good at public speaking to stuttering my words and repeating myself a lot because my short-term memory was damaged at the time. So I couldn't remember what I just said. And so I would be repeating things frequently. And so I had to, like I said, go into speech therapy and occupational therapy, neurology visits, um, physical therapy, all of these kinds of things to get back to in, in, into recovery. And so that is kind of what sparked that initial interest for me, um, just learning all about that. And then in 2011, I had the opportunity to intern at the Traumatic Brain Injury Model Systems Study at, here at The Ohio State University um, with two leading experts in traumatic brain injury. And I just saw how passionate everybody was in that research lab. And um, I really learned at that time the overlap between behavioral health, such as like mental health conditions, like anxiety and depression, and um, their role in traumatic brain injury and traumatic brain injury's role in those mental health conditions. And everyone was just so passionate about it and so welcoming. And it really developed my interest and sparked my passion for wanting to do um, research in the area. Wow, that is such an amazing story. And it's good to see how far you have come um, since your injury. And, um, you know, so sorry for having gone through that. But seeing the triumphant comeback and the work that you're doing right now that is driven by your passion for um, TBI. So could you tell us a little bit more about TBI in terms of what is it? How big of a problem is it? Um, what are the kinds of risk factors and the causes? You gave us an example of the injury uh, where you're concerned and if there are any different kinds and also misconceptions associated with that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great um, question. I'm going to start off with like, what is a traumatic brain injury? And I think that's the biggest thing that um, people don't really know. Um, so there are lots of definitions of traumatic brain injury too, from the World Health Organization. The CDC has a definition. Um, the um, American College of Surgeons has a different definition. So this is really important that we stick to a common definition of what traumatic brain injury is so that it can be identified. So I like the CDC definition um, and they define a traumatic brain injury as a disruption in the normal function of the brain that can be caused by a bump, blow or jolt to the head or penetrating head injury. So it's when the head actually gets hit or is penetrated by an external blunt for, um, external piercing force or a blunt force. But also it's really important to note that a traumatic brain injury can also be sustained through whiplash or blasts. So you actually don't have to be hit in the head to sustain a traumatic brain injury. And the reason for that is, um, so when you, for example, with a whiplash injury, um, the head would shift back and then um, forward. And what it does inside is basically it's being held in by this kind of like gelatin material. Like the brain is being held in between the skull with this gelatinous material. And the brain will actually rebound and would hit the back and then hit the front of the skull. And there's actually bony ridges on the inside of our skull. So it's actually not smooth in there. And those bony ridges can, is what is a big reason that can cause a lot of problems in that frontal lobe. And um, where a lot of the common symptoms manifest because of that um, frontal lobe damage. So it's important to know that it's not just a bump or a blow or a jolt, but I mean, it's something that can be sustained even through like a blast. So if you think of um, military personnel, if there is some sort of a um, bomb that goes off and they're in the near vicinity, they can absolutely still sustain a traumatic brain injury that way. So a traumatic brain injury though is not um, like a stroke or an aneurysm. That's a form of brain injury, but it's not a traumatic brain injury. And I think so one of the other questions that you asked was like, how big is the problem? <laughs> um, so it is a very, it's a very big problem, but I think it's just not well known. So it's often termed the silent epidemic because it's hard to um, see, like you don't see somebody who has had a traumatic brain injury, uh, no outward signs, like with an orthopedic injury, you would have swelling or bruises or like a break or something like that. But with the brain, 
the person might look completely normal on the outside, but there's a lot of changes going on inside the brain. So studies estimate that like 69 million people globally um, sustain a traumatic brain injury each year. And in the United States, it's about 5.3 million people who are living with a TBI or TBI-related disability. But again, that's only the individuals who have actually been identified to have a traumatic brain injury. Um, and so I guess you can think of it like, so if you look at it like a pyramid, for example, um, at the very top of that pyramid, you have TBI-related deaths. So like the smallest proportion are the uh, deaths related to traumatic brain injury at about 56,000 per year. Um, and then if you look at the next, if you just think of like the next tier down, there's about 288 TBI-related hospitalizations each year. And then the next tier down, getting a little bit wider, um, there's about 2.5 million TBI-related emergency department visits. But then on the very bottom of that pyramid, the biggest section is we, we don't know. We don't have any data on those individuals who may not receive care, who don't seek treatment, or whose providers don't identify them to have had a traumatic brain injury. And so it's, it's hard to identify. It's not well identified through um, typical MRIs or um, anything like that, because you can actually have a completely um, normal MRI, it would not show necessarily any structural damage, but what's actually going on in the brain um, is pretty significant. So uh, MRI and those typical medical ways of diagnosing a brain injury are actually um, not very good. Wow, that's, that's really amazing to know that. Um, you know, I think normally we get stuck on the brain injury and not really have a good understanding of that traumatic aspect. So it's was good that you were able to differentiate uh, between having a stroke and someone who has this um, brain injury from a fall or an accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you brought up falls. So I wanted to say too that falls are actually the leading cause of um, TBI-related death in the United States, um, specifically among older adults. So that's a really, really big area. It's one of the highest um, causes for injury, for traumatic brain injury and TBI-related deaths. And then unfortunately, immediately following that is um, TBI-related deaths um, resulting from suicide. And that's something that we've noticed a big uptick in over the last few years um, is, you know, access to firearms and things like that and suicide uh, attempts and completions. And the cause of death, though, is the um, injury to the brain. And so that's another area that's just really alarming, I think, especially in the COVID area where there's been a spike in suicides and, um, you know, an area for prevention, I think. Um, and yeah, it's just really concerning. And in Ohio, um, we've seen that trend as well um, with suicide spikes um, and TBI-related deaths because of the suicide, particularly among the males. Wow. And so when we think about how best to understand this, we obviously have to look at some of the misperceptions and misconceptions about TBIs. Uh, could you talk briefly about that? Yeah, I'm really happy you brought that up. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about traumatic brain injury. Um, but I think one of the biggest ones is that the person does not have to actually lose consciousness to sustain a traumatic brain injury. So you can, um, you know, be, you can fall and um, hit your head or have a major um, like car crash and get the whiplash effect. Um, and you may not lose consciousness at all. And you can still have a traumatic brain injury. I think that's one of the biggest, the biggest misconceptions that I consistently hear. And then another really big one is that people think that a concussion is not a traumatic brain injury, when in fact it is, it's just a form of a mild traumatic brain injury. Um, so I also wanted to clarify, there are three major types of traumatic brain injury. We have the mild or like the concussions, a moderate traumatic brain injury, and a severe traumatic brain injury. So when you start to get up into the moderate to severe, and the way that we would classify that is the individual losing consciousness for 30 minutes or, or greater. Um, so for a moderate, it would be 30 minutes or um, up to 24 hours, completely out, completely loss of consciousness. And then severe would be 24 hours or greater. So there are those three main types, but concussions still count. Concussions are a, a traumatic brain injury. Um, and then the other final one I think that I hear often is that you 
you actually don't have to be hit in the head directly to sustain a traumatic brain injury, right? So that's what I talked about at the beginning with some of those mechanisms and that whiplash or that blast injury can still sustain a traumatic brain injury that way. And so I think those are the biggest misconceptions that I hear, um, not only among the general public, but also among providers, which is really alarming. Wow, this is great information, um, knowing that there are the different kinds, but also trying to address those uh, big misconceptions. And in your own research, which aspects of TBI are you focusing on right now? Yeah, um, that's another great question. So the TBI research is like can fall on a spectrum. So if you think of like maybe going from left to right, on the very left hand side of the spectrum is like the neuroscience, um, the basic sciences, studying like those chemicals and those reactions within the brain and the neuronal reactions. And that would be like the, the basic sciences. And then moving through the spectrum to post-acute, so acute care um, research and the emergency department. Um, and then you move on to rehabilitation for TBI and then going down the line of the spectrum outpatient community-based treatment, and then community or integration. So my research really falls in the outpatient community-based treatment and community reintegration. And I'm really focused and interested in the long-term impacts of traumatic brain injury. And so my research really falls on, on the right, right-hand side of that TBI research spectrum. Um, and I know that you mentioned at the beginning um, the implementation side of it. So we have a lot of research and a lot of interventions for traumatic brain injury that were developed because of that neuroscience aspect or the acute care rehabilitation, acute care um, or rehabilitation. Um, but the problem is, is that a lot of that just kind of sits in the uh, scientific literature. It does not really get out as much as we want it to, to the general public, right? So it's created for individuals who have sustained the traumatic brain injuries, like some of these interventions, but we're not really using them. And so this is where I see implementation science and I define my research in the intersection of traumatic brain injury, implementation science and behavioral health services, because I am looking to translate some of those existing TBI care interventions into the service landscape so that they're not just sitting in those scientific journals, but they're actually being used for the, the individuals who we are um, trying to help have better long-term outcomes. Indeed, um, that is some um, fascinating aspects. And speaking a little bit more about the multifaceted part of your work, you're also looking at the determinants to mental health treatment access, integration. You talked about service utilization um, and then other co-occurring um, issues such as substance use and mental health conditions. How do this interact and why are you interested in these topics? Yeah, so I, this is just my passion area. Um, so I think all of those issues go hand in hand. So the traumatic brain, first of all, a traumatic brain injury can actually lead to a um, mental health condition or a substance use disorder. So there have been lots of research on this aspect. So it's estimated that about 20% of individuals who had no prior history of substance use um, or misuse actually develop a new substance use disorder following the traumatic brain injury. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, there's the psychosocial aspect of it, of like a self-medication, and um, that can go hand in hand with the mental health, like depression and anxiety over not sh being sure about how that recovery would go. Um, but some people actually um, have the premorbid substance use disorder that only gets exacerbated after the traumatic brain injury. Because when you sustain a traumatic brain injury, the brain is um, very, it's, it's just very sensitive. So the alcohol or drugs would actually hit harder for somebody who has sustained a traumatic brain injury. So they would feel the, the effects of the substance much faster. And so you have that being an addictive um, concern, I think, for someone who's sustained a traumatic brain injury. And in addition to, like I said, um, anxiety and fear over uncertainty of how the outcome is going to be. Um, so we know that about 30% of people who sustain a traumatic brain injury get better. Um, so you, you will always have some sort of effect from the brain injury, whether you, whether you know it or not, because what it does 
is when you sustain a traumatic brain injury, it activates um, what, what is called the microglia, the microglial cells. And when those cells become activated, they're like scavengers. They go in and they cause inflammation in the brain. And once those become activated, they remain activated for a lifetime. You can never turn them off. And they can, of course, decrease in the inflammation and the inflammatory response, but they always remain on. And so some people are able to get better, like I said, at 30%. Some people, 30% um, remain the same. And then there's a ton of 30% that actually um, decline in, um, really get worse over time. Their disability um, heightens and um, things just become a lot worse. And it can especially be exacerbated, like I said, by some of those mental health and substance use disorder conditions following the brain injury. And I think where it's really important that we are able to recognize is that mental health treatment access. So you can think of it as like, there's already a lot of stigma surrounding mental health, unfortunately, still. And um, so that is one barrier for people going to seek treatment just for mental health services. But I think the other thing is that people don't understand um, what a traumatic brain injury is or whether or not they've sustained one. So they could suffer these effects of the traumatic brain injury without even realizing or connecting the dots that it's from the traumatic brain injury that they're having these kind of subtle um, or significant um, problems later on. And then the other issue though, is that about 50% of clients who seek treatment for substance use or mental health conditions actually have a lifetime history of traumatic brain injury. 50%, half of the clients that are coming into get behavioral health or mental health services after they've gotten over those barriers in the first place, um, they have it. And um, so the thing is, is that a lot of behavioral health providers are not screening for traumatic brain injury. And so that can impact that um, treatment engagement and those long-term outcomes. And I think that that is actually an access problem. I think that Lack of provider knowledge can really bar whether or not individuals are able to receive disability supports or other service provisions or even possibly medical referrals that they might need. And so when we're not identifying the brain, the brain injury and its impact on the mental health and the mental health treatment service and access, that's where I think we run into the biggest kind of mental public health issue. Wow, this this is really eye opening right now, because I see an issue of self medication. And then I see an issue of people who probably didn't know that they had this TBI just from a small fall, or maybe the whiplash that you talked about. And then when you say that the providers are not aware of 50% of the people who come in with behavioral issues. So then this presents another situation where we need to add a question in that screening tool <laughs> that we have every time we go to see the doctor and they ask you, do you feel safe in your house? You know, we need to add a question about, have you ever had a traumatic brain? <laughs> right, right. Um, and I wonder what question would really fit into meeting that need, knowing how many other questions needs, need to be asked in that initial visit, right? Yeah, I'm happy you brought that up, actually, because a lot of studies have included and looked at what if we included one single question that says, have you ever had a traumatic brain injury? And that actually is um, creates underestimates of, of how many traumatic brain injuries there are, because just asking the one single question doesn't really prompt the individual to think about um, these circumstances under which they may have had a traumatic brain injury. So, for example, say someone comes in and you're going through a, a, like a psychosocial assessment with them and you ask, like, have you ever gotten into like any fights or do you remember any fights or anything like that that you've gotten into? And the person's like, oh, well, yeah, now that I think of it, I, what, I did get into a fight last week and I, like I got knocked out. Like someone punched me in the face and I got knocked out. And the person, whether the behavioral health provider or the physician um, or the nurse or whoever's doing the assessment might not, first of all, they may not connect the dots that that's actually a traumatic brain injury, but then the individual might not connect. So if you are just asking, have you ever had a traumatic brain injury, but the person doesn't know that a concussion counts as a traumatic brain injury, then they will not be likely to say yes to that question. So what we want to do is actually ask a series of questions 
um, that would get at whether or not they've had a lifetime history of brain injury. And there are um, lots of screening uh, methods out there for doing this. Um, but the one that I like the most, because it is one of the most efficacious um, and effective ways to identify lifetime history of traumatic brain injury is um, the Ohio State University um, traumatic brain injury identification method. And that was developed, again, by those two experts that I worked with in the um, TBI model systems lab. And they developed this um, whole method for prompting, using some a series of questions to prompt, prompt the person to remember, like, oh, well, that fight. Okay, so I did have that fight and I get it not get knocked out. So that would count. That's something that you would mark. Or um, even something on the playground, like did you hit your head on the playground and did you get knocked out? And the person says, oh, yeah, well, now that you say that. And so going through the series of questions can actually provide more effectiveness for whether or not we can identify that history of brain injury. And I think that's where there's also like a big disconnect between like the medical and the social side of it, because in the medical world, you know, they tend to rely on MRIs or CT scans, which really, like I said at the beginning, would not show whether or not the person has had a traumatic brain injury. You can have a totally clear MRI scan and um, you still have that lifetime history of brain injury. And also I wanted to clarify, when I say lifetime history of brain injury, that can be a brain injury that occurs anytime throughout the person's life. Because even if you sustain a brain injury during childhood, it can have long-term out outcomes in terms of economic and income um, and like wealth savings and housing, um, mental health problems, all of those things. Even if the brain injury occurred when they were like five years old, for example, you still have those long-term effects. Um, so just the screening aspect um, is just really important. And the way that we ask the questions and the types of screening methods that we utilize are really going to show us um, the best way to identify that that traumatic brain injury. Wow, this is really <laughs> amazing information. And I think this is something that, um, you know, our healthcare providers need to pay a little more attention to um, especially when we have such high statistics. Now, you alluded to access, and you've published two papers on mental health service utilization among adults and also um, college athletes um, in terms of um, facilitators and barriers. So could you tell us more about these barriers and facilitators of utilization of mental health services among TBI survivors? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really complex topic because I, I did allude to it at the beginning. I talked a little bit about stigma. Um, the stigma associated with mental health alone can bar people from going to seek treatment. Um, but then if you look at the traumatic brain injury, there's also, I think, a lot of stigma surrounding it. So because of those misconceptions, um, people might view an individual who has had a brain injury as violent, for example, if they've had like a personality change because of a brain injury, or, or there's a lot of stigma too among collegiate athletes of, well, you know, I, I'm not going to be seen as tough if I don't go back. Like, I, I don't want to be the weak person on my team. And there's like the cultural aspect too. So you have like the team culture, and like the coach and the coach is like that leader. And a lot of that can filter down and affect that whole like climate and that whole culture of that team. And I think especially with uh, collegiate athletes or even uh, student athletes in high school or junior high, the common perception, one of the biggest ones that we found during our um, one of our studies was um, the whole pull yourself back up by your bootstraps kind of mentality that is passed down, um, especially among certain types of sports, like um certain team sports. I think football is like one of the biggest offenders for this, but um, you know, the coach will be like, oh, Hey, come on, you're fine. You got up. Like I used to get hit in the head all the time. And that was a direct quote that we got. Um, when we interviewed high school athletic trainers, they would tell us that the parents would say like, well, what are you doing? Why do you have to take my kid out of practice? Um, they're fine. And that's just really not the case. And so I think that you, you have this cult team cultural aspect to it. And then like the stigma of, having a mental health condition, having a traumatic brain injury can really affect whether or not someone chooses to seek treatment. But then I think on top of that is there's just lack of services available. So 
Um, I know speaking to the state of Ohio, we only have one, one treatment center that understands and knows how to treat individuals who have both a traumatic brain injury and um, mental health and substance use disorder, so psychiatric comorbidity. Um, nothing else, to my knowledge, exists even throughout the entire state. And I know that's not very different for other states. So you have that lack of services in general. Um, it's just not there. And, and then even if you do have those services, um, if you think of like a geographical distance, it may not be easy for the person to get into services because it's too far away or their insurance won't accept it. And these were all the things that we found in both of those articles that you um, referenced. And there's a lot of overlap between the barriers. And I think when you add them together, it just kind of creates this like storm of um, barriers to getting into and accessing treatment. And I think that's where we need to really work on the education aspect and um, also just getting policies in place and getting some more treatment centers open that can actually treat these individuals and know what they're doing. Right on. Um, I think I understand that there's still so much more that people don't grasp about TBI and this contributes to those barriers. And when you add the stigma of mental health or mental illness, then that just makes the situation even worse. And, you know, you talked about policy implications, um, and I know that you're interested in policy issues related to TBI, and you published a paper on barriers and implementation of state concussion laws within high schools. It's good to see that there are some concussion laws. I wonder how often they get implemented or how well they get implemented. So what barriers did you identify in your research? Yeah, so that's a really great question, too. Um, so I want to preface by saying that there are national laws um, of regarding um, traumatic brain injury. This is the first and only law related to injury that the U.S. has in place. So that came about from these laws came into place. They, they were first implemented in Washington State in 2009. And it was the result of parents, two parents advocating um, to get some sort of law in place because their son sustained a traumatic brain injury um, during a football, high school football game. And he was returned too soon and got hit again and ended up dying um, that, that game, during that game. And had we had something in place to identify the brain injury and some prevention efforts in place that could have been avoided. So since that time, between 2009 and 2014, all 50 states and the District of Columbia have um, enacted and adopted state-level TBI laws that are aimed to mitigate the effects of sports-related concussions at the high school level. And so there are three primary tenets to that, and I think this is important to know because it goes into what the barriers are that you just talked about to implementing. Um, but there, the three primary tenets, the first one um, that all state has some variation of is an, a required education component and for um, coaches, parents, and student athletes. So the education varies quite a lot but that we found in some of our research um, per state. So we analyzed, um, oh gosh, I can't remember how many states we actually had, um, but we interviewed athletic trainers to um, see what they were finding. Um, and because they're often the ones that are set in charge of um, creating a concussion policy. So using that law to create the policy within their high schools. And the education component is really, really different across states. And that's one of the most concerning ones. I'll get to that in a second when I talk about the barriers. But the second tenant is that if a student athlete is even suspected that maybe they sustained a concussion or maybe they got hit a little bit too hard in the soccer field or something, their um, coaches parents, athletic trainers, other student athletes are required by law to intervene and remove the student from play immediately um, following any suspicion of a traumatic brain injury. And then they are not allowed to return back to play the third tenant of the law until they have had medical clearance to go back um, to uh, the concussion protocol and the graduated concussion protocol. So what we found was actually a lot of barriers in all three of those tenants of the of the TBI laws. And so the first one I talked about was that education um, aspect. 
there was just a lack of quality of education truthfully across a lot of the um that we found across a lot of the high schools so some schools would just hand out um or send home in a packet with their with the student um just like an information sheet about brain injury and that's a problem because we don't know whether or not the parents are actually reading it or um, really understanding it or how comprehensive those information sheets are however other schools were really um, involved and they would have meetings and um, several training sessions and a lot of education that was really high quality. But we saw that one of the biggest barriers to actually implementing this one tenant was that lack of quality education. And another one related to that is just the lack of buy-in. I talked about this before, but the whole mentality of like, you know, uh, a TBI is a concussion or pull yourself back up by your bootstraps. We heard that a lot. Um, and so coaches are would be less likely to engage in some of those educational requirements. And then finally related to that, that one tenant, just on the educational tenant for now, is although it was a good thing that some of these high schools implemented quality education, they had those in-person meetings and videos and um, information sheets, all this multifaceted education, if you cannot attend that educational meeting as a parent, then you're not going to be getting that education. And that was a big problem that we saw because some of the parents are working two jobs. They're working late into the night. They can't attend an after-school educational meeting like at 3 p.m. in the afternoon or something if they work full-time. And so they may not be getting that educational aspect. But then the other thing that we really saw um, related to the removal from play tenant was that athletes do not want to report a concussion symptom. They they might have known, but they didn't want to be taken out of the game. And one of the reasons that we found for this is um, this would they would see this as their like um, sporting as their way out of wherever their living situation was and into college. And if they get taken out of the game, then they're going to miss that opportunity to score points and boost their statistics to get into um, that college, to get onto that college team. So they didn't want to be removed from play. So they weren't reporting the symptoms, knowing what they were. And then there was just like a lot of lack of communication too. So um, if you think of it like an away game, you have the away game athletic trainer and your trainer may not be traveling with you. And uh, that, that athletic trainer might have removed a student athlete, but then nobody communicates about it. So the student athlete was removed from play, but then they're not collaborating. They're not communicating about having the student having sustained this injury. And then the student would go back to play um, our practice on Monday, for example, um, without anybody having talked about that. And so that can be a real problem. Um, and then there was just like a lot of resistance that we found still, even to this day from, um, like I talked about it a lot already, but coaches and parents of just saying, you know, well, I got hit in the head all the time and I'm fine. And and then they are complaining of like chronic migraines later in life. And so they're really not fine. And there just be a lot of pushback. Um, and the athletic trainers we talked to actually got heckled quite a bit by, um, and bullied even by some of the parents and shouted at. Um, by some of the parents that you're not taking my, my, my child out of the game. Um, they're staying there. What's wrong? We're, they're fine. We used to get hit all the time. And wow. so that really barred athletic trainers able to do their jobs. And then I think though, to that point, I talked a lot about athletic trainers. Athletic trainers are, you know, costly. It's another addition to, um, you know, the school and the budget and the sports budget, and not all schools have athletic trainers. So when the athletic trainers are not there at the school, the law implementation is actually lower. And then finally, the last tenant, some of the barriers that we saw was just the cost in accessing medical care. So you are required by law to be screened by a medical provider to and cleared by the medical provider to go back to play. But some, some people don't have insurance or their insurance won't cover the type of medical professional that that state mandates um, for them to be returned to play. So I know in some states, they're required to be returned by a neurologist. So a neurology is a specialist um, and they're a lot more expensive. And not all parents have that insurance. And that really hinders the student being able to go back. Um, but at the same token, other states only allow um, like chiropractors, for example, to return them to play. But 
chiropractors don't have the knowledge to be able to assess or screen for brain injury and um, start them on that graduated return to play protocol. So um, those were some big barriers that we saw to implementing these TBI laws and what they're for in the high school level. That is great information. And I think this is really critical for policymakers, healthcare providers, um, teachers, parents to know more about. Um, but as we know, sometimes the, you know, life happens and sometimes with the socioeconomic differences and health disparities, this information is not available to everybody, right? Right, exactly. Um, you know, and this just keeps going back to the barriers and keeps going to access of health and going back to what I'm so passionate about is how can we, it's not on the person, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in public health, we never say, well, this person didn't um, do what they were supposed to. You know, we have to place it on the public health laws. It's, it's mm -hmm. the burden of the policy. And so what we need to do is make those policies amenable to what's going on on the ground, basically, like in the family and in the school from a safe perspective. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and they are constantly being revised. You know, the law, the TBI laws are being revised. States are revising them and working toward better implementation and, um, you know, clearer, more specific policies too. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still, still something that's a work in progress. So briefly, you know, you alluded to the self-medicating for people who have this um, known or unknown um, TBIs. You know, opioid use continues to be a public health priority. And uh, given your interest in that relationship with TBI and opioid use, you looked at the patterns and predictors of prescription opioid in initiation following traumatic brain injury. Could you tell us more about those patterns um, just briefly? Yeah. Um, so like you said, so we did a scoping review. Um, we went and sifted through over um, 1,400 articles and whittled it down to nine articles that actually talked about prescription opioid initiation following traumatic brain injury. And what we found from that is some of the greatest risk factors for being prescribed an opioid during inpatient rehabilitation or outpatient rehabilitation was um, presence of back pain, arthritis, and neuropathy. So those were some of the greatest predictors to having received a prescription opioid. Um, we also saw that uh, individuals who are white race were more likely to be prescribed a prescription opioid. Um, and then males were more likely than females to be put on long-term opioid therapy and to have chronic use. And I think that's partially because of the long-term aspect of the type of prescription opioids that they are put on. Um, but females were more likely to be put on a short-term opioid regimen and um, not have chronic use. So male um, sex was a, a pretty big risk factor. And then something that surprised me too is that if you were younger, so like less than 45 years of age, you were more likely to be given a prescription opioid than somebody who was older. And then um, people in rural areas were more likely to be receiving a prescription opioid than individuals in the city. And I think some of that might be an educational aspect. Um, if you had higher disability burden and a more moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, so your loss of consciousness or altered state of consciousness was 30 minutes or greater, um, you were more likely to be given a prescription opioid than someone who sustained a mild brain injury or a concussion. And then something that was most notable to me that stood out the most was that nearly every article that we analyzed for this discussed the presence of existing mental health conditions as the main risk factor for being prescribed an opioid. So specifically having a history of anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, or substance use disorder actually predispose these individuals to also receive an opioid following a traumatic brain injury. And I think what was especially interesting about that was it having a combination of all of these mental health and psychiatric comorbidities with the TBI posed the greatest risk for opioid initiation. Um, so individuals who had that combination were more likely to be prescribed. So in the, I thought that was strange. Like if you look like substance use, the person has a pre-morbid pre history of substance use disorder, and they were more likely to be given an opioid afterward. And so I think a lot of questions remain about prescribing practices, and um, what are we doing to mitigate the effects of that? 
And I think it's really, really concerning for people with traumatic brain injury to be given an opioid uh, because of some of the risk-taking behaviors that happen with a brain injury. So they're more prone to abuse the substance. Um, and actually, people who have sustained a traumatic brain injury are 10 times more likely to die from unintentional overdose than the general population. So I think we really have a lot of work to do in this area. I do agree with you. Um, more scrutiny go- needs to go into looking at how this um, prescriptions are written out. And again, the buck stops with the policy, um, the policies in place. And um, so there, there are so many gaps um, <laughs> in the utilization. Yeah, exactly. I agree. There's, there's so many gaps. There's so much that we still don't know. Even as far as we have come in the TBI research world, there's still so much more to study, so much more that we could be doing whether it's primary prevention or secondary prevention mm-hmm. to um, mitigate this disability burden associated with, with TBI. Right. And so looking at from a multidimensional lens, um, how do you think your work intersects with uh, public health? I see my work as public health, really. I, I don't think it's separated at all. I, I, think, I don't even think it's intertwined. I just think it is public health, right? So if you just look at all of the Um, comorbidities associated with brain injury and the widespread aspect of traumatic brain injury. Like I said at the very beginning, 69 million people worldwide have a TBI or a TBI-related disability, but most brain injuries are not seen. They're not a visible injury. It's a silent, it's been termed a silent epidemic. So I see the work as public health. It's a public health crisis and it's something that we need to address. Amazing. I agree with you. I didn't know so much about it. Um, <laughs> and definitely this is right at the top there with looking at opioid use, looking at infectious diseases, looking at those non-communicable diseases. This is definitely a silent epidemic. And I think that's where, uh-huh. going back to like my personal story about it is I feel very fortunate to have recovered the way that I did, especially with how severe things were at the time. And I think that that's also what sparked my passion to want to give a voice to that silent epidemic and understanding really the intricacies of it because I've gone through it. I have that personal experience. Um, I really know and understand what it's like. And I'm really happy to be able to be that advocate and you know, put out additional research in this area and knowledge and so that we can give a voice and make it not so silent anymore. Right. I, I really appreciate your giving that personal perspective to this. And then, you know, this is what you're doing for practice and, and trying to make a difference in this field that, uh, you know, we have not really paid a lot of attention to it because we've expected to see those physical symptoms um, from MRIs and just not realizing how there's such an intersection between this behavioral outcomes opioid use, mental illness, etc. So that we thank you so much for, for, you know, being a, an advocate, but also willing to share what happened to you and then seeing how much progress you've made um, to the point where you're getting a doctorate uh, in this area. So that's really, really commendable. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like a podcast for another day and everything that went into it and like all Mm -hmm. the access to care barriers that I faced um, at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a whole, a whole nother podcast (laughs) for another day. I'm happy to talk about. Wow. Wow. Yes, indeed. So as we wind down, what are your most memorable moments in your work to date? (laughs) I have a lot of really great memorable moments. Um, And hmm, I think, so there are several. I think that some of the most memorable to me is, and this kind of sounds small maybe, but you know, when I get to work with a team of other people who are super passionate about brain injury and passionate about these topics um, and working together and like throwing out ideas together and nicely arguing with each other and kind of like questioning each other's um, results and things like that and methods, I think is just really exciting for me. I love the team aspect. I love working with teams. And so I think thinking back to some of our research team meetings, I, I have enjoyed those, some of them most, just because of those, those reasons. But then another one was during my very first year in the doctoral program here at OSU, um, I was unable to get a hold of an article that I really wanted to read. 
And so I just reached out to the lead author of the paper. Um, he's from Australia. And he immediately messaged back and he was like, oh, I see that you're, um, you know, you do TBI research and you live in Ohio. That's so exciting. I'm coming to Toronto to um, give a talk at the Toronto Rehabilitation um, Unit to some of the providers there. And he's like, why don't you come? <laughs> you're not that far away. And he was coming from Australia. So <laughs> I think for him, it was like, oh, it's all close by. You can come. And I had some, I was really nervous. I'm like, I don't know who this person is. Like, this is really scary to me. But other people, um, I talked with other um, mentors that I knew, and they know this person. Um, he's a pretty prominent TBI researcher over in Australia. And I got some nudging by some of our professors in the College of Social Work. And they were like, you know, you got to go. You just drive. It's not that far away. Go. And so I drove during my spring break down to up to Toronto, and it was freezing cold. And it was the best opportunity. I absolutely loved it. I made so like such great collaboration connections with people. And I still work with um, this person today on an international study with brain injury. And I think that's my most memorable is just getting across the border into Toronto and um, being with that group and hearing these exciting presentations and things. I, it was just awesome. Oh, that's great. Um, it's always nice when we find such wonderful, memorable moments in the work we do and how that intersects with our own personal lives. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time to share with us your practice and your research, but also your personal connection with this topic. And I'm definitely going to bring you back um, to, <laughs> to talk more about your own um, barriers and facilitators um, as you navigated, um, you know, access to care um, while you are undergoing treatment and care for your own TBI. And so thank you for coming on and, and for sharing what you shared with us. And we hope that we can call on you another time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure and I really appreciate being here. Awesome. And we want to thank the listeners also for taking the time to listen and feel free to send questions um, to the podcast and to myself. And if if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that, Catherine? Um, yeah, so you can reach me, I think, by email is probably my best. Um, mm -hmm. I can give you my email now and that's completely fine. Um, so uh, you can reach me by, um, my last name is C-O-X-E, Cox with an E at the end, dot six, uh, like the numeric, numerical at osu.edu. And I'm more than happy to talk about brain injury. I love it. I could talk about it all the time. So I'm absolutely welcome to questions or collaborations or anything. Awesome. Awesome. I really enjoyed talking with you also. Um, learning about the brain is something that I'm passionate about too. And so this was so exciting, um, just having new information, additional information to what I already have. And so listeners, we hope that you can tune in um, next time for another episode of Public Health Musings. Thank you and have a good day.